love one another, forgive, judge not, fear not. It's all such great advice with beautiful outcomes, but none of those principles is a one-step process. So let's talk specifics, the messy step-by-step. Welcome to, but how though, in a bunch of other spiritual conundrums. Welcome back to But How Though and a Bunch of Other Spiritual Conundrums. This week we're going to take a break from all the miracle talk to address a question I don't ask myself near enough. We find this question in the Bible in Matthew 26 when Jesus is sitting down for a meal with his apostles and the conversation took a very interesting turn at the dinner table. Matthew 26 verses 21 and 22. As they did eat, he said, he being Jesus, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. I imagine every single head snapped up right then and stared very intently at their beloved leader and thought to themselves, Did I just hear that right? One of us is going to betray him. In verse 22, it describes their reaction. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Why did he do it this way? Why declare a betrayer in front of each other at a dinner for 12, for a minimum of 12? Who knows who else was there? It seems a counterproductive way of discovering a betrayer or a counterproductive way of confronting a betrayer. But most interesting was their reaction. They didn't point fingers at each other. They didn't look for reasons why. Well, it's probably... Thomas, obviously, because his faith was like shaky already. And Thomas didn't come back with, come at me, Peter. You're the one with the temper problem. It's obviously going to be you. These are men that had front row seats to each other's weaknesses. These are men that knew each other so well that when accused of something they thought was probably unlikely, it would have been very easy to look outward. But they weren't defensive. They looked inward. But how, though, with so much out there of needing to feel right, and for most of us, sincerely wanting to do right, how do we resist the urge to look outward for the culprits when there really are culprits out there? But how do we allow ourselves to look inward and admit there are possible culprits in there, too? I have lived most of my life in what I lovingly refer to as the superiority-inferiority cycle, which means my ego is enormous. (laughs) Ego, as I define it, is basically just a fear. It's a fear of inferiority. And so I spent most of my life trying to feel superior so that I didn't ever have to feel inferior. But it never achieved balance in any of my relationships. I was constantly at war. I was constantly trying to win. Because if I felt superior... It meant I was winning. The problem with that is, though, there is never a stasis. There's never a point at which I can sit back and just enjoy someone for who they are. No, no. I have to be constantly looking for reasons why I'm either better than them or they're better than me, which makes me feel bad about myself and makes me try harder and I get stuck in this horrible, toxic cycle that serves no one. This week, I saw an interesting quote on Facebook that threw down an accusation similar to the one Jesus threw down at the apostles' feet. The quote was about white Christianity. Well, I'm a white Christian. 
It's from a person named Erna Kim Hackett. And it says, White Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisee. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people, to see itself as Israel, not Egypt, when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society, and it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. This person is saying white Christians in the United States are unable to see themselves clearly and therefore are ill-equipped or not at all equipped to engage in issues of power and injustice. When I read that quote, it was very easy for me to pick out groups of people who fit that exact description. It is also very easy to not include myself in groups of people that fit my description. To think I'm the princess and the villain is out there somewhere. But just this week, I had to physically stop myself from engaging on some argument on someone else's Facebook wall. Because they posted it publicly, I felt almost an irresistible need to engage with it. Imagine their personal and private space where they get to display what's meaningful to them became in my mind an arena in which I needed to display what was meaningful to me because it conflicted. This is a thing I was tempted to do this week, more than once this week. And it is really sad when I have to chant out loud to myself, just keep scrolling, just keep scrolling. Some years ago, a friend of mine said something so powerful, I have never forgotten it. She said, whenever I encounter something that makes me feel the need to engage in someone else's drama, I say to myself, that is not my circus, and those are not my monkeys. And I laughed, but then I really thought, no, that is so true. If those are not my monkeys, I don't have to worry about how they're behaving. If those are not my monkeys, I don't have to worry about the mess they're creating. If those are not my monkeys, I do not have to be responsible for their behavior. We all feel pretty defensive right now. It's easy to think that if someone disagrees with us, it's like they're calling us idiots. And we may feel the need to explain ourselves and our perspective or possibly convert them to our perspective with all of our valid arguments. Or at the very least, we feel the need to stand up for ourselves and address their conflicting belief. This is especially apparent when someone has a hurtful opinion, an opinion or a stance in some cause that dehumanizes us in some way, that makes us feel Less than, undervalued, a non-entity, not even worth their time or thought. This one's super tricky because we feel like we got to fix that because we know we are valuable. We know we should be prioritized, but we are not responsible for another's beliefs, nor are we responsible to make another person be kind, see reason, or support the, quote, obvious choice for a morally superior cause. Now, nowhere 
in Christian doctrine does it say, allow other people to dehumanize or otherwise abuse you? Nowhere does it say that. Under no circumstances are we supposed to throw away our own value and allow another person to treat us as less than human. But as it turns out, Jesus also gave us the pattern for how to handle that. Interestingly enough, in Matthew 5, when he's delivering the Beatitudes, he gives an example of how to reconcile differences with our brothers and sisters. And he gives the most interesting example in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, he says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Isn't that interesting? That the example he gives of what a person could be in the middle of doing when they realize They've got something against their brother or their brother has something against them and they got to go and take care of that first. The example of what they could be doing in that moment is a person bringing something to the altar. What we're here to do is develop, increase, progress. And when we tap into Team Universe's power and ability, our capacity to learn, grow, succeed, increase, progress, etc., is increased exponentially. But what does it require from us? What is it we're bringing to the altar? It's described as a broken heart and a contrite spirit. In this context, broken heart is not referring to a heartbreak that makes us sad. It is referring to a heart that's been tamed, broken like a horse. And a contrite spirit is not a depressed and downtrodden person. It is a person who is capable of feeling remorse or a person who is penitent, a person who can be affected. Now, if we are trying to learn, grow, and succeed, and we got to bring a broken heart and a contrite spirit to that altar, and we are in the act of bringing that to the altar, how could we be in a state of tapping into Team Universe's power if our heart is in fact trying so hard to win, trying so hard to be more right? If our heart is in fact at war, how could we tap in to the power to help us progress? We can't. First, we got to set that down, go back to the person we got something with and be reconciled. We don't got to do that publicly, throwing the door open to their neighbors in their personal private space and declaring why everything that they think is wrong. We go and take care of that privately, one-on-one and allow them to have their own dang monkeys. Then we can come back to the altar because we're no longer trying to win something. Now we're just ready to grow. So the interesting question about this dinner party, about why did Jesus throw down this accusation in this way? Why did he declare a betrayer to 12 men in front of each other? And how did these 12 men feel safe enough to ask the introspective question, Lord, is it I? And the answer is love and trust. They trusted Jesus This accusation was not something to put them on the defensive. This was not something that they had to fight or defend. This was something that they felt from a person who loved them, who they knew and felt bone deep would never harm them. That kind of empathy, Jesus level empathy does not come from Jesus choosing to empathize only with people who are right all the time. 
first of all, there's no such thing. And second of all, what would be the point? It would frustrate his entire purpose if he spent his time validating one group of people in order to condemn another group of people. That lifts no one, including the group who's validated because it just throws us into that state of the superiority-inferiority cycle, and then we're in constant competition that requires a continuous fight to stay there. Well, there's no such thing as a broken heart and a contrite spirit when we are in a constant state of competition. Now, Jesus creates a space that is conducive to introspection because he offers empathy instead of judgment. Empathy is understanding. It is respect. It is patience with another person's perspective, even when it conflicts with our own. And it is necessary. The true miracle occurs when we can dial down the defense, when we can realize that another person's perspective, even publicly shared, isn't an attack. It is not a call to arms. Even if it sounds exactly like one, it's theirs. It's not ours. That is their circus. Those are their monkeys. We don't have to carry the weight of their opinions. We don't even have to pick it up. History in our nation and other nations has shown us that true peace comes from asking the introspective question, comes from looking inward instead of outward. Lord, is it I? And then listening for the answer. And we should not be surprised when the answer comes in the form of correction. It will always be loving and encouraging. But Team Universe loves to spread peace. They love to help us progress. They live to help us come closer together and make more of ourselves. And they can only do that when we come to the altar with a heart tame enough to hear them. That's all I got for this week. I'm Rachel Larson. Thank you so much for listening. I know Team Universe loves all of us. Weaknesses included. Questions included. And they can answer them all. Even, but how though?